It's Monday, March the 29th, 2021. More than 500 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we're discussing how the concerted effort to tackle COVID-19 has brought decades of scientific progress in just one year, and what that new knowledge means for treating future threats to human health. Natasha, how are you? How are you feeling? I'm good. It's been an exhausting, absolutely crazy week. We've had uh, the EU getting into a fight about export controls. They want to keep more vaccines within the block. We've also had one of the strangest episodes I've seen so far when the National Institutes of Health in America got its knickers in a twist over some data that AstraZeneca had released and said it was outdated. And then AstraZeneca released some more data and it was about the same, you know, information that we'd had a a few days previously. And that was essentially about efficacy and a US trial has just read out and, you know, the efficacy of the vaccine there is 76%, which is really good actually. And it's higher in the elderly as well. So another great vaccine there, but a very strange incident. And Alok, before you ask me, as everyone keeps doing, to explain how all this keeps happening uh, to AstraZeneca, I can't. And it's like that Netflix show, a series of unfortunate events. And I'm starting to feel like Lemony Sticket here, uh, sort of narrating this kind of unfolding set of events that just don't seem to make sense and sort of bad things keep happening. AstraZeneca really has um, either had bad luck or bad PR or something. Uh, We'll go into some more uh, of all of this a bit later in the show. Uh, We'll also be hearing from Greg Glenn. He's the president of research and development at the vaccine manufacturer Novavax. Also joining us this week is Oliver Morton. He's the briefings editor at The Economist. And he's also put together this week's Technology Quarterly, which examines how the pandemic has revealed the potential of new technological innovations. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Alok. Hi, Natasha. Can I ask you for a a bit of a difficult challenge here? In one sentence, can you sum up how science has responded to COVID-19? With a wholehearted, sometimes hobbled mobilisation that has achieved great effect. Okay, we'll unpack all of that in this programme. Natasha, what about you? Can you do it in one word? Um, Well. Well. Is that that the (laughs) beginning of a sentence or is that the whole sentence? That's it. That's the one word. Or very well. I would say if I were were permitted to have more than one word, with a show of great force, a lot of collaboration and great speed. Okay, well, the response to COVID-19 has been one of rapid innovation. Barely a month after the first cases were reported, laboratories were running tests for SARS-CoV-2, a virus they'd never seen before. 
Week by week, the deluge of research on the virus and therapies against it have been distributed worldwide at speed. Scientists have tracked the evolution of the virus in real time by genome sequencing on an unprecedented scale. And, most remarkably of all, as we've said before in this podcast, a range of safe and effective vaccines based on various cutting-edge technologies appeared within a year. My name is Gregory Glenn. I'm the head of research and development here at Novavax, so I oversee the development of our vaccines. Novavax is waiting for approval from drug regulators. Greg Glenn has been telling me how the vaccine works. The Novavax COVID-19 vaccine is made up of a spike protein. That protein is the protein you find on the surface of the virus. We make it, uh, if you will, artificially, something like a 3D printer. We take the gene you know, that's derived from the virus, so we never actually touch the virus. We express the gene as a protein, as a spike protein. And then we put it in a little particle made of soap, basically, detergent. And that, that looks like a virus to the immune system. And so you get a very strong and very specific immune response against the spike protein. So if you were to be exposed, those antibodies will bind to the virus and block it once you've been vaccinated. So tell me about the technology itself. So the idea of 3D printing a protein and putting it inside a soap bubble, essentially, uh, the way as you put it, and creating that to make sure that the body can then have an immune response. Where does that idea come from? Has it been used in other vaccines, or is it something completely novel? Yes, no, it's been, this idea was invented by my next-door neighbor here at the office, Dr. Gail Smith. He's a genius. Uh, It is the basis of several products. Um, The most recent is called FluBlock. And, you know, the merits of this, in the vaccine world, you're trying, if you will, sort of fake out the immune system by giving it something that looks just like the virus without making people sick. And so this is a brilliant idea because essentially, from the immune system standpoint, it sees a protein that is exactly like it is in the virus, and it knows to react to it to make a very specific immune response to the spike protein. And then after safety tests, at what stage did you start trialing it on people? You know, we had the, the vaccine in, in February. We had it tested in animals in sort of March, and then we were able to start the clinical trial in May in humans. And so just, you're nearing the end of that clinical trial, and, and we hear good things about your vaccine. Just just give us a, a heads up about the kinds of effectiveness you're seeing in those trials. Well, it's the best. As you probably know, the virus has evolved. And so all the other vaccines that have, have declared data, that, that is the mRNA vaccines, they've been evaluated around the spike protein that is exactly the same, you know, from the exactly same strain as which they made the vaccine. So when we look at our data for that, we have 96% efficacy against any disease, which is actually, you know, as good as it gets. It's remarkable. But, you know, there was an evolution of this strain. We shouldn't call it the UK strain, but internally we do. And against that strain, where there's been a very significant amount of evolution or change in the protein, we still see very high efficacy of 86%. And so that's effective against the B117 strain, even without changing the formulation in any way. That's correct. We knew this about our technology. We're always watching for new viruses. Our particular vaccine gets a very broad response. So even though there can be changes that really matter to natural immunity, our vaccine goes much broader because we work with flu. So we have the same problem in flu. 
And uh, we have, you know, our, our technology is very good at creating a spike protein in this case that would, you know, in fact, could be expected to protect against a new variant. Natasha, where does Novavax fit into the global pool of uh, vaccines? Well, the Novavax vaccine is going to be really important this year because they could produce as much as 2 billion doses. About half of that is going to go to COVAX, which is a, a global vaccine distribution pool. It's stable in the fridge, so it's easy to transport. It gives it a great deal of uh, utility all around the world. So I think it's going to be a very important vaccine. And of course, it has this high efficacy. There's one thing we need to watch. The Novavax vaccine is much less effective with the B1351 strain, which was first seen in South Africa. And we should expect that that will be true, actually, of many of the other vaccines, that they will have a reduced efficacy. So we need to keep a close eye on that. Okay, so the Novavax vaccine should be approved, we hope, soon in various places and will be very important. But let's step back a minute and look at the general scientific response in the past 12 months to COVID-19. Oliver, if I can just put this plainly, how did technology and science meet the moment? I think that what you saw was something a little bit like watering dry ground. A whole lot of ideas which had been sort of like germinating beneath the soil suddenly came out. And that was partly because there's an awful lot of stuff that you can do in the lab on bioscience, which people don't really appreciate outside the lab. But when you actually start applying it to a brand new problem, it feels kind of miraculous how quickly you can do things. And we don't appreciate this because most of the diseases that biomedical science is being used against us, like well-established diseases, and so you get a little bit of incremental this or that. But when you have a brand new disease, which is sequenced within weeks, the, the vaccine candidates start getting sorted out mere weeks after that, it just feels like an incredible blooming, is I think all you can say. Let's talk about drugs. Natasha, tell us about the role drugs have had in the past 12 months in trying to fill the gaps around what vaccines can and can't do. Yeah, we often forget that vaccines and drugs come together. They're kind of like the package of the response to COVID-19. They don't really just come on their own. You don't just roll out vaccines and expect the problem to be solved. You need drugs to treat the people that uh, the vaccines don't reach, either because they're not 100% effective or because they can't take the vaccines. And because of the urgency of the pandemic, the first strategy was really to kind of look what was in the medicine cabinet and sort of pull it all out and say, can we use this? Can we use that? And that's how we kind of got all this discussion about this drug hydroxychloroquine, which everyone wanted to work, but actually didn't. And so thanks to trials, we now have um, lots of answers about what does work and what doesn't. And we know that the steroid dexamethasone does work. It reduces the death rate for people who are on ventilation, mechanical ventilation, by about a third. We know there's a, an antibody drug called tozilizumab, which is used for rheumatoid arthritis, and that also works as well. Given at the right stage, antibody therapy can be very effective, but the key is the right stage. And so if you're already in hospital and you're very sick, um, you know it's probably too late to take an antibody therapy. That said, if you are just coming down with COVID, it's too early in the sense that you know, you'd have to give it to everyone. It's an infused drug. You need to go to hospital. So it's been really hard to find the sweet spot for these antibody therapies, even though we know given at the right time can be like enormously effective at preventing people from going to hospital and things like that. What's the production of these things like? Is it easy to make? 
Well, no, they're not. They take time to make. And here's the really interesting thing. They're made in the same vats that a lot of vaccines are made in. And at the moment, the global supply chains are enormously stretched, trying to ramp up to produce vaccines. And I know that they are competing uh, with these monoclonal antibodies for the same sorts of equipment. And Oliver, just what other ideas and technologies from the past 12 months have you seen that, that, that you kind of think people should keep their eyes on? So I think the one one of the ones that really stands out is just a, an oldie but a goodie, which is reading gene sequences. And it's not just that by reading the gene sequence really early on in the pandemic, um, scientists were able to find ways into sort of like making those spike proteins that Glenn talked about or making the RNA or the adenovirus vaccines and all that sort of stuff and the PCR tests. It's just that this virus has been now sequenced, you know, well over a million times. And if anything, that hasn't been enough. In order to track down the new variants that are spreading around the world, you just need to be doing lots and lots of sequencing. One of the things that I've found intriguing is that although sequencing is a really powerful technology, it's still not a really easy to use one. And one of the things I'd like to see come out of the pandemic is rugged, foolproof sequencing and PCR technologies that can be used in hospitals, but also in prisons and on farms and at sewage works. There's an amazing amount of information about how the world is working out there, and we should be able to read it even better than we can now. Natasha, let's talk about what didn't work so well. What do you, have you seen in the past 12 months that has been disappointing scientifically? The biggest disappointment was the antiviral drug remdesivir from Gilead. And um, there were high hopes that this drug, which was already on the market, would help. But actually, all it seems to do is reduce the recovery time in hospital. It doesn't really change the outcomes. It's worth having, but it's not what we wanted. I think given enough time, we will get a better antiviral. We might still find one that's on the shelf, but I think the commercial incentive to find one that works really better through development is absolutely massive. And what we need to do is we need to kind of unpick the pathways inside the body that are causing death, whether it's the um, it's going to be parts of the immune system, maybe it's parts of the clotting system. And as we become clearer about what's going on at a molecular level, we will be able to develop much more targeted drugs. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, you'll need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story that opened my eyes recently was about the mismanagement of COVID-19 in Brazil, where the P1 variant of the virus is running rampant. The country is suffering a huge second wave. It's much worse than the first. With the death toll of more than 2,000 people every day, that's a quarter of the world's total, despite the fact that Brazil only has 3% of the world's population. And that mismanagement in Brazil could threaten the whole world. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. Now it's time for our regular update on the world's best performing vaccination programmes. James Fransham from The Economist data team has been looking at the latest numbers for us. And as we always do, we've turned that data into sound. First to be sonified this week is the United States. 37% of people in the country over the age of 17 have now received their first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. 
and 20% have received a second dose. Next is Chile. 45% of adults in the country have received one shot of a vaccine, 23% have received a second shot. Britain has now administered first jabs to over half of all adults, but just 6% have received a follow-up jab. In the UAE, 61% of adults have received a first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, while 38% have received a second shot. But way out in front is Israel. Its vaccination programme is nearly complete. 94% of adults are now reported to have received a first jab of a COVID-19 vaccine and 84% have received a second jab. So those are the best performing countries. But James, you've also been looking at the speed of scientific research in the past year. What can you tell us about that? So according to one tally from PubMed, which is a search engine covering life sciences, 60,000 journal articles have been published since the beginning of 2020 that mention the word coronavirus. Another figure, which is broader from Primer.ai, which counts preprint publications too, or in other words, those that have yet to pass a peer review process, puts the total number of COVID-19 articles at over 125,000. And then an even broader figure, which would be to look slightly outside the scientific community and look at research covering economics or perhaps even engineering or even archaeology captures about 363,000 different publications since the onset of the pandemic. That's a lot of work. Um, How does it compare to a normal year's worth of research publications? As a point of comparison, while we did see a rise in research output following two other coronavirus outbreaks, SARS in 2003 and MERS in 2012, the increase, however, was pretty minuscule by comparison. So just 10,000 journal articles published between 2000 and 2019 on PubMed mentioned the word coronavirus. And that obviously compares to 60,000 since that point. More broadly, as a share of total research output, one estimate reckons 4% of scientific articles have concerned themselves with COVID-19 since the onset of the pandemic. So in other words, perhaps one in every 25 papers. According to Elsevier, a Dutch publisher, papers about COVID-19 published in just the first few months of last year originated from 65 different countries. 
Apart from the sheer volume, um, are there other ways that the scientific process has sort of changed during the pandemic? At the beginning of the pandemic, we really saw the role that preprint servers played in disseminating scientific research. So thousands and thousands of articles that weren't yet peer-reviewed were published on these preprint servers. Since then, actually, what we've seen is that the standard journal um, titles have responded in speeding up their peer review process. So one study from last April, which tracked the progress of about 600 journal articles, found that since the onset of the pandemic, the publication process had fallen by about half to 57 days. The rapid pace of publication has obviously been a good thing in terms of disseminating information, getting everything going medically uh, in the medical research really well. But there have been problems. Natasha, what are some of the issues around the speed of all of this? When we launched these vaccines, we just didn't know so much about them. We didn't know whether they would reduce transmission and if they did by how much. We didn't know and we still don't know how long they're going to last. We've no idea whether the variants are going to defeat them or not. And actually, we don't know the right dosing interval. We're still arguing about what the right dosing interval is. Most of the vaccines are given at three or four week dosing intervals because that's how they were tested. But had there not been a pandemic on and had we not been in a rush, we'd have probably tested a longer interval. So the need for speed in the pandemic has meant that we are in a situation where we don't know as much about um, these products that we're using as we would normally. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be using them. It's very clear we should and that they're very useful and effective. But it does strike me that one of the problems of moving very quickly is that we don't have as much information as we would quite like. Just focusing on one example, the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine seems to be in the middle of a whole bunch of disagreements and um, pieces of miscommunication. Is speed or miscommunication really at the root of a lot of the arguments going on around that vaccine? If we look at what happened this week, one of the things I was reading in science was that the White House got involved in this issuing of a press release at midnight by the National Institutes of Health. And it does strike me that if everyone wasn't in such a rush, they wouldn't have felt it necessary to rush out a press release, which seemed to imply that something incorrect had been said about this vaccine, when actually it turns out that the original release by AstraZeneca was very close to what the the second release was. So rushing out a press release when you're talking about a vaccine that this year is going to be used by, what, one and a half billion people, and that is already in wide use in Europe, it's in wide use in Britain and in India. I think that's a difficult decision to make and perhaps an incorrect one. Oliver, anything you want to say about that? It does worry me that um, I reported on the AIDS pandemic decades ago, and There is a worry that when there's a lot of scientific information, you can pick different bits to make out different stories and you can see conspiracy theories develop in the margins of this process. And when Tabo and Becky became convinced by HIV denialists that anti-HIV therapy wasn't the right way forward on AIDS, 
hundreds of thousands of people have died. So I think you do need to worry about the idea that someone thinks that by reading the scientific literature and being a, you know, clever, able politician, which Becky definitely was, they can somehow sort of like arrive at a deep truth other than by sort of a period of consultation and real examination. That's a good segue into what I was going to ask you next, which is that it's all—it's very good to have all of this research published and available to allow medical advances to, to continue uh, and to tackle the pandemic as we have it. But also the future of dealing with health threats will rest on how good the governance is in the future, how good the institutions are to actually prepare us. Oliver, I wonder if you could talk a bit about what those parts of the pandemic response need to do in future, what, what, what they can learn from, from COVID-19. Well, you know, it's very easy, you know, be prepared is, is is really good advice. And we know that the countries that were better prepared as a result of their SARS experience have been countries that have tended to do better faced by COVID-19. I think that it's part of actually a broader issue that some people are now calling natural as opposed to national security that poses questions about both pathogens and food chains and environmental degradation and, you know, how to make political systems resilient in a biological world that they have all sorts of interconnections with that we're not used to putting in one broad context. And of course, that whole broad context is changing because the system of the earth is changing. So I know this is probably going larger than you were thinking a lot. But, you know, with the whole system of the earth changing because of climate change, with all the biological relationships between politics and the living world put into question, there needs to be some really fundamental rethinking of sort of like concepts like natural security taking over from these 20th century and 19th century concepts of sort of like international matters being basically about war and the avoidance of war. When you actually have a global population of going on 10 billion, interacting with the biosphere in a myriad of different ways, the way the world works and the way governments have to respond to it is actually fundamentally different. Okay, Natasha, Oliver, thank you both very much. It's not only rich countries that have innovated quickly during the pandemic. In Cuba, two vaccines for COVID-19 and in phase three clinical trials, the island prides itself on its pharmaceutical research. After the communist revolution in 1959, Fidel Castro pumped resources into the health sector in an attempt to become pharmaceutically independent while the island was under blockade. Today, Cuba produces nearly 5 million doses of vaccine annually to protect against 13 different diseases. My name is Roseanne Lake and I have the very good fortune of being The Economist's Cuba correspondent. Roseanne has been telling me about Cuba's vaccination efforts for COVID-19. Cuba, uh, for a country of its size and for a country with its GDP, 90 billion a year, is doing remarkably well in terms of vaccine development. They've got five vaccine candidates they've been working on, two of which are currently in phase three clinical trials, which is all very promising. But it's important to consider that, you know, they're also one of the few countries in Latin America to not have vaccinated anyone um, in the country because they're very determined to use their own vaccines and not to buy any or accept any. Creating vaccines is something that Cuba has prided itself on for a very long time, and uh, they're determined to, to handle this themselves and I ideally be able to assist other countries in the region with vaccinating their populations as well. And so what are the leading candidates so far? 
So you have two. Uh, Soberana 2 is one of the leading candidates. Now, one quirk about Cuba's vaccines is that they all have very interesting names. So Soberana in Spanish means sovereignty, uh, which is not a subtlety. It's meant to say we are a sovereign country. This is something that we pride ourselves on. And here is our vaccine. And the Abdala which is named after a poem by the revolutionary poet Jose Martí. So, you know, both of the names of these vaccines that are in phase two clinical trials have very strong connotations associated with them. And as far as vaccines go, they're conjugate vaccines that carry part of the spike protein from the coronavirus. One of them stimulates the immune response in mammalian cells, that's the Soberana 2, whereas the other one does it in bacterial cells, which some doctors were commenting, oh, this is good because it would mean that the Abdala, the one that uses the bacterial cells, would be less expensive to produce, which obviously for a place like Cuba is a very good thing, although it requires three doses as opposed to the Soberana. So just in terms of how far these two leading candidates have got through the trials, just explain what the trial process is in Cuba and and how does it compare with the, the, the Western one, where stringent regulators have been approving the vaccines from places like Pfizer-BioNTech and AstraZeneca and so on? Very good question. So instead of the FDA and regulatory bodies like that, in Cuba you have La Autoridad Reguladora de Medicamentos, Equipos y Diapositivos Médicos de la República de Cuba. Um, quite a mouthful. Which is the, it is a mouthful. But, so they're the body that, that sort of dictates when a drug can pass into phase three clinical trials. And um, they're sort of the ones tasked with keeping people informed of how the trials are going to evolve. So we know that for the Soberana 2 in Havana, they were recruiting 48,000 volunteers to take part in these phase three clinical trials. And interestingly, another 100,000 doses of the vaccine were sent to Iran. Cuba has a partnership with the Institute Best in Tehran, and they were going to be conducting some clinical trials of the Soberana 2 in Iran as well. For the Abdallah, those clinical trials are taking place only in Cuba and also with about 48,000 uh, volunteers taking part of it. If you can step back for a minute, how do these vaccines fit into Cuba's drug industry more broadly? Cuba is not new to the vaccination game, right? They've been developing them for a very long time. This industry started in Cuba after the Cuban Revolution. So lots of doctors and researchers, the top medical talent, leaves the island in the years following the revolution, and Fidel is determined to build it up. And that was successful, right? Things like interferon, which, which Cuban um, researchers learned to make after a trip to Finland in, in the 80s, saved their tails after dengue outbreaks and meningitis outbreaks, right? So Cuba has a long history of doing this. And they've, over time, you know, despite not having loads of resources, they've really sunk a lot into it. So an economic windfall from something like the Abdallah or the Soberana 2 would come in very handy. That's probably not what's going to happen. But domestically, it would help them avert, you know, further spending on having to buy vaccines for sure. And that's sort of what's been the justification for all along, right? It's like, well, we haven't made loads of money for these vaccines, but there is a pride in being able to look after our own people, their well-being, after our healthcare system which, you know, we're tremendously proud of, and also the savings in terms of vaccines that, or medicines that we may have otherwise had to import. Natasha, how important is Cuba's vaccine to the world? To the world, not very, I'll say. It's a very niche product. They're going to give it to Cubans and maybe they'll give it to some people in Iran or Mexico or Venezuela. But maybe if you go on holiday, they'll offer it to you as well. And just on that report, and one of the things that strikes me is that Cuba could have been part of the COVAX initiative, which was a way to obtain vaccines 
at a very reasonable price. And also um, low-income countries were funded as part of that. So it is curious to me why they have felt the need to not actually go after any sort of external vaccines, which they could have had. Isn't that because there's a long history of enforced going it aloneness in Cuban medicine, and Cuba sees it, and you know it's it's a genuine source of great national pride, and I think that must be a, a large part of the story. I mean, you know, Cuba is in some ways biomedically a, a really impressive place. It's got a better child survival rate than the United States does. It takes medical stuff very seriously, but. Part of the lens through which it does so is doing it itself. Yeah, but the strategy for every country should be to kind of spread your risk and not put all your eggs in one basket. And so it makes no sense to me that you would pursue your own vaccine and not, you know, essentially um, have a fallback just in case those those efforts don't succeed. Can I ask you both just to wind up by just taking a step back from all of the innovation and scientific research in the past year. Both of you are veterans of the of co- in covering biomedical research. I mean, I mean, I don't want to say the number of years, but many years. Could either of you have imagined that there would have been such a strong scientific response in the past twelve months, Oliver? Yeah, actually, I could. I mean, I don't think I imagined what the full impact of the pandemic would be very well, but not least because Natasha convinced me. I did believe throughout 2020, that there would be a pretty effective vaccine, if not more than one, by the end of that year. I'm frankly a little disappointed that we didn't see more in the way of sequencing, and I'm disappointed in the way that testing didn't get integrated into um, systems that might have used it better. I saw some institutional things in the scientific world that didn't, I think, work so well. But I'm not, I think, by nature an incurable optimist, but I do have a certain sense of what science can do, and it's kind of done it. Natasha? I don't think I realised just how absorbed the whole of the scientific community would be with COVID and how many scientists who work in kind of tangential areas would sort of all pile in. I I just, perhaps it was a lack of imagination on my part. I certainly didn't think either that it would be this bad at this time of 2021. And I had thought we would be on the tail end and looking forward to a much quieter 2021, if I'm honest. I think the variants and the effect of the variants you know, did come as quite a big eye-opener towards the end of last year. So, yeah, that was my impression. I, I did, as Oliver said, I did always think the vaccines would be a big deal and would really matter and it would come quite early. So what we've learned is that science has moved fast. Scientists have come together in unprecedented ways to respond to the emergency of COVID-19. And that's not come from nowhere, of course. It's the result of many decades of work in labs that's probably until now seemed niche. Vaccines have been a big success in the past 12 months, but drugs to actually treat COVID-19 have proved more complicated and will probably take longer to arrive. But for me, perhaps the most important lesson of the scientific response has been that research by itself is not enough to treat future health threats. For that, you're going to need better governance, institutions and politics, and those parts of the world have not shown the same collaborative spirit as scientists and could learn something. 
Now, before we finish today's show, we've invited Jason Palmer back. A couple of episodes ago, he told us about taking part in a trial for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Hi, Jason. Welcome back. Hi there. You've had the second dose of your vaccine or placebo, whichever one it is, uh, in the trial. Um, But a lot of listeners had questions for you um, after your first appearance uh, about what happens to you if you're if you get offered a real vaccine by the National Health Service here in the UK. So just explain what happens. Well, once I'm uh, offered a licensed vaccine, I'm supposed to tell the people who are running the trial. They will then unblind me, which is to say they, they will tell me whether I got the vaccine or the placebo. Um, if I got the placebo, it's fairly straightforward. I could then get the licensed vaccine, no problem. Um, and the assumption is that if I got the, the, the trial vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that I am, in fact, inoculated, so um, all safe there uh, as well. Um, the kind of open question is whether or not uh, I should then get a licensed vaccine at some later point, and I think the, the information there is, is kind of unclear. But what happens to the trial? I mean, if once you get unblinded, you have to come out of the trial, right? Right. So I, I fall out of the trial um, almost. The one reason to continue in the trial in some sense is to continue to get uh, safety data. What they don't get is efficacy data, right? Because you behave differently once you realize you've been vaccinated or haven't or whatever. Do they follow up on durability? I mean, do you have to kind of give blood tests down the line? Um, I haven't been given a sort of program of, of things to do down the line. But can they kind of call you up and say, could you come in? We want to test your antibody levels. Yes. Um, I, I think that it's a kind of a, it's a, a basically I'm, I'll have a bunch of obligations over the next two years to speak to them, to take my temperature, to whatever for. Um, but again, they're, they're just gathering, gathering safety data at this point. So I think, um, you know, basically if I don't keel over, then it's safe. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, basic, so basically <laughs> the fate of the world depends on, 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 on Jason now. If he keels over, we're doomed. As, as it always, as yeah. it always does. But, but Jason, just one other question to ask: so it, I, What I'm curious about is that, so obviously, if you do get unblinded and you're, and it turns out you're on a placebo, and you get offered uh, another vaccine, you can go and take it, which is sensible because we're in a pandemic, and it's a good idea to do that. But then, how will they know that the safety data down the line is due to their vaccine or the other vaccine? I mean, that's really complicated to unpick. Um, it is. And and the people running the, the trial told me that this is certainly not how they would have planned it. They didn't know that things were going to play out in this way with this sort of conflict with licensed vaccines. They didn't know at the time that things were going to roll out so fast. Um, but I think they're just trying to salvage what data, what data they can get. Well, thank you, Jason and Natasha and Oliver. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alok. Thanks. That's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radioeconomist.com. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll focus on the challenge of distributing vaccines fairly around the world. <laughs> <laughs>